This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning, everybody. It's uh, very nice to see you all. I think in our changed lives and in the sort of isolation um, that we more or less um, keep ourselves to, I, I've been noticing this week a particularly a kind of you know, a loneliness or a missing of, of the people of the Sangha and being able to be together and sit together. So I'm happy you all have uh, made it here today. Um, but it is also my, uh, my great wish that we will sooner rather than later be together again in person. Um, like Bruce mentioned, I wanted to um, particularly welcome anybody who's kind of new to the Austin Zen Center community. Uh, I've been in particularly impressed um, to see people kind of find us online um, since the shutdown. Um, and dive in, you know, and just come and join us for meditation, uh, for services, and for talks like this. So welcome, and, and thank you for, for being here. So it's been, uh, I believe, about two weeks um, since the death of uh, George Lynch, and um, I think I wanted to express appreciation for the, the last few talks that I've heard. I actually was in a doctoral program for Chinese medicine that I'm doing this year, uh, two weeks ago. So I didn't hear Mako's talk until uh, yesterday, I believe I listened to the recording. Um, and it was deeply moving. And I want to thank Pat for sharing her, also her insight on um, this kind of, this way that Dharma practice and our, our Zazen um, can inform how we um, go in search of justice, how we can explore our, um, and understand our, our racial identities and our racial conditioning. And to me, how, how this process so closely links up with my understanding of the process of practice, of the Buddha's way, of, as Dogen would say, studying the self, what makes up this particular perspective that I carry around in the world, what, what all has gone into it, and a lot has gone into it. It's kind of endless. But part of our practice is to, to delve in and explore and see what we find there. Um, and ultimately, I think, integrate um, the wisdom of even our, our darkest kind of corners of ourself. And I do feel like this moment in our world is uh, requesting that we, we take that look. So maybe there's never an easy time. Um, maybe there's never the time that we feel completely ready to 
pull back some veil in our own life and in the life that we engage in together. But I think another wisdom of Zen practice and of Zazen is that what comes up in our experience, both internally and externally, is not usually our choice. And uh, we actually find the most kind of richness in our experience when um, we stop trying to make it our choice in a way and just appreciate, respect, uh, acknowledge, and as clearly as we can see what is arising in every moment. So culturally, but also personally. I think one thing I, I really appreciated about both Mako and, and Pat's talks was this kind of effort to maybe correct a, uh, a mistake that we've fallen into in uh, American Zen of, um, or Buddhism maybe even, of seeing the pain and suffering in our world and in ourselves. Um, and trying to kind of banish it with a sense of oneness, a sense of everything is already okay. And I, you know, I appreciate um, the teachings that I've received reminding me that everything is totally interconnected and in some inexplicable way, everything is okay in a broad, broad, broad perspective. But that does not diminish or um, lessen the, the importance of our individual experience and our individual perceptions of the world. You know, that is the realm of practice too. So, um, in, this poem that we chant um, sometimes, which is called the merging of difference and unity. Even the, the title strikes me as deeply Zen in the sense that my understanding of um, Zen practice in particular is that what we're trying to maybe do or um, live out is both an expression of our complete interdependence and our complete uniqueness. And that um, we're kind of asked to study the uniqueness and not sort of discard it in the effort to sort of experience the oneness. Um, and of course there, you know, we're just using words to actually differentiate maybe things that aren't actually separate things. So we can be both an individual and part of a huge constellation of being. And I think we have to remember that, especially when it comes to talking about race and history of white supremacy and racial injustice, that we can't just sort of paint those over with a desire to just experience oneness or to live in oneness. 
there's actually many names for that. I think Mako mentioned that that's called Zen sickness sometimes. It's this desire to be peaceful and feel connected all the time. It's a beautiful thing, you know, when we have a glimpse or experience this connection. But very quickly, our human uh, kind of grasping leads us to prioritize that as what I should be doing or what I should be experiencing. And that's actually a destructive impulse to what's actually here, what's actually arising in the particular. So this is from um, a book I recently just started reading, uh, which is very lovely. It's um, Zenju Earthland Manuel, who was a, um, a Dharma heir of, of our um, founder, Lance Hartman. And this is from her book called The Way of Tenderness. She says, however, simply knowing race to be constructed or an illusion does not change the mind saturated with hatred. To know that there are many ways to live, sexually, with or without a prescribed gender, does not affect the extent to, what, to which one might be tortured or killed for doing so. Hatred remains potent whether directed at a construct, an illusion, or at the reality of others. Therefore, identity should not be dismissed in our efforts towards spiritual awakening. So Angel, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, who was here last year and gave a Dharma talk at ACC, um, and also who some of us, when we traveled last year to Tassajara, got to um, spend some time in, in some classes that she was teaching at Tassajara, um, which were pretty powerful. So this is the way that um, Angel Kyoto Williams um, maybe describes this same importance in our practice. She says, learn the stories, learn your own. We can't know our own personal minds without understanding the conditioning and the fabrication of that mind. Our social conditions are what make our mind you don't get your own mind. You only have a collective mind. It's a pretty bold statement. Um, you don't get your own mind. You only have a collective mind. You, you have only ever had a collective mind. It is ridiculous to say this is not the path of the Buddha. Buddha never talked about social justice. The path of the Buddha was explicitly rooted in decasting and declassing. It was so much what he did that he didn't even have to say anything about it. It was all that he did. So the deep wound of injustice um, that in a way is very woven into the very fabric of our country and culture, and maybe not just our own, is also somehow part of our path to liberation that in this moment where it all seems to be right in front of us, hundreds of years of oppression in changing forms somehow have been given this voice that we suddenly kind of can hear. 
And as painful as that is to witness, part of our practice is just to witness and hear, to listen. There is also this kind of moment of pivot that's available, this moment of you know, changing maybe not just my own personal conception, but this conception we all share. So deeply um, instrumental to the kind of philosophy of Buddhism or, or the Buddha's early teachings is this idea of ignorance. That in, in Sanskrit um, is avidya, avidya, avidya or ignorance. So there are, you know, in the, in the kind of most basic conceptions of Buddhism, or classifications, there are what are called the three poisons. I think this is actually mainly a teaching that's used in Mahayana Buddhism more than early Buddhism, but the three, three poisons we know of as ignorance, uh, hatred, and uh, delusion. Or greed, I'm sorry. Ignorance and delusion could be considered the same thing. And when we look a little bit into what, what's meant by ignorance, um, I found it fascinating that some modern commentators say that it's not a kind of not knowing, it's not a kind of, uh, we were totally unaware of the reality of our life. It's more a kind of, yeah, it's an ignorance or misunderstanding of the nature of reality. Um, at the deepest level in Buddhism, that means the nature of not-self and dependent origination. So one of the things we're most ignorant about is our connection to, uh, to all other beings, which is apparent. You know, if we truly understood our connection, I think we would take better care of each other. So uh, one commentator, Peter Harvey, said he's, it's not specifically a lack of information, but more a deep-seated misperception of reality. And Gethin, who wrote another um, kind of history of Buddhism, calls it a positive misconception. So it walks this boundary of almost kind of willfulness, of a kind of like, I don't know, you know, at times because I don't want to know because it might be painful to know. So I think when we, we see the lives of black men taken through kind of the force of our society in a way, through our, our vehicle, the police of this culture, you know, maybe we can say we're surprised, but I think if we look a little more deeply, it's not a surprise of like, I never would have thought that was possible. It's maybe like, I know that that's possible and now I have this visceral experience of it. And it's amazing how much that visceral experience completely alters our, our sense of self and others. And again, I think that ultimately can be a good thing. 
So ignorance in, in Buddhist philosophy is also the first of the three, of the 12-fold chain of causation. So what samsara is, or how we, as humans, suffer, kind of originates with ignorance. The misperception. So how do we practice with not knowing? We're not being able to fully realize. In a way, it feels like a catch-22. Like, how do I discover what I don't know? How do I find out what I don't know? Especially when, as a, as a kind of limited human being, at least through practice, I assume there's, you know, most of what's available I don't know. I don't have direct experience of. And I have only this limited window of my own direct experience to try and gauge what's happening in the world. So last weekend, I believe my, um, my root teacher, um, Josho, uh, Pat Phelan of the Chapel Hazen Center, gave a talk. Um, and it was a talk of That didn't feel new. It was something that I, you know I've heard her say many times, but it felt very powerful in this moment that she was focusing on something similar to ignorance, which she was calling it perception and misperception. And she says, "Our um, and I think this is what we kind of discover through zazen, through trying to be present and upright with our own experience and all of the information." that's coming through our senses and from our own mind, that maybe we discover, as she puts it, that our sense perceptions are distorted. And they're distorted by our histories and conditioning, our cultural norms and languages, our moods and preceding emotional states, our biochemistry, on and on and on. All of these things are affecting the way we see the world. This means uh, each of us perceives and experiences the world in a subjective and unique way. She goes on further to say, it means that there is no objective world. And maybe because of that, no wonder we can't get along. That very honestly, in some way, we're all perceiving a different reality. That's the extent of our ignorance. And I think just to talk about our ignorance can feel <laughs> um, you know, heavy or even hopeless. Um, and so I think another sort of wing of practice is the compassion that we have for ourselves and for all ignorant beings sense that it's it's sort of tough to be uh, a member of the Saha world, to be um, a creature of samsara. It's pretty much part of the deal. Um, and yet when we practice and we have experience of maybe uncovering our own conditioning or our own preconceived ideas, there's a freshness that can come into our life. You know, um, maybe I'm no longer weighed down by that particular hindrance. 
And as we say, Dharma gates are boundless. You know, hindrances are boundless. So I, I think if we set up this kind of goal of overcoming all hindrance, of walking through all Dharma gates, <laughs> that with this expectation that we'll finish that somehow, um, I think maybe that's just another way that we suffer. And yet, we're here and we're alive and we're responding to this very moment. And so we do what we can. Um, I think this is kind of integral to the bodhisattva ideal is that we're, um, we're trying to stay awake to and witness the suffering that we feel internally, that we see around us, that we respond to within other beings. We commit to doing that without or with some effort at letting go of this expectation that we will complete that task. How hard is that? How maddening? And yet what makes it easy is to just appear in the moment, to just receive the world as it is, and to do our best that freshness comes directly from that moment. It's not when we complete the task. So yeah, how do we work with our fundamental ignorance, especially when we see how much pain it causes us and others? So I'm gonna offer just a couple quick models for maybe ways to practice with this ignorance. And one I'll just say is with humility, with being quiet and listening, and with self-compassion. I mean, I talked about the third just a moment ago, but maybe I'll say a little more. But to me, humility just means that through practice, I see my own you know, I glimpse my own misperceptions. I see the ways that I've been fooled by my conditioning and that I continue to fool myself, repeating certain stories. You know, being upright in Zazen and being somehow uncomfortable can help us build this tolerance, this strength, and maybe courage to acknowledge that I don't often get it right. I don't often understand what the world needs or even what I need. In my, uh, in my bodhisattva vow to care for, for all beings. And I think that humility, that seeing how I, how I fail, how I, I don't even say fail, how I, you know, I, how I continue my own ignorance, I think that humility then makes me open to, well, what is your experience? How is it for you? What wisdom do you have to offer? How I might see through my own ignorance in this particular area or conversation. 
So listening, again, is that second step. It's I think, realizing that I don't have all the answers to my own suffering, let alone the world's suffering, can soften me and, and allow me to listen in a more active way. to receive that listening honestly, and maybe not so much through the filter of my, no, but I think it's this way, I wanna argue with you. Or, and then what happens when we can't kind of, we can't stay there, we can't quite stay upright with the suffering that we are witnessing. Surely we do shy away, we hide out, we head under the blankets and wait for a better day. And I think that's where self-compassion is really important in our practice. Yes, it's tough to live in the midst of great suffering. Yes, it's difficult to feel implicated in a sense in a completely unjust system, to be a part of it, whether I'm willing or not. Ouch, that's hard, that's difficult. I think that's the, the listening even to our, to our own experience. So I wanted to say something about the practice of, maybe the metaphor and practice of medicine. For those that don't know, there's you know, many um, representations of the Buddha and they're often distinguished by different kind of mudras or bodily postures. But one is uh, called the Medicine Buddha. And it sits, there's a version of the Medicine Buddha that sits on the altar at the Chapel of Zendo, holding some sort of bowl and, and also kind of touching the earth. But there was a lot of, in early uh, Bali canon, a lot of of language of the Buddha as doctor. And our practice as a kind of path of healing. And I notice more and more, I think, that you know, in our culture, there's, there's a kind of theme of dominance, of seeking to control in a very um, powerful and direct way. And it even comes through, I think, in our, in our kind of met our national language for how we culturally, how together we deal with problems. So we create, you know, a war on drugs, a war on poverty, a war on COVID. It's kind of like the main language we know in a kind of national dialogue. And at times it strikes me as absurd, you know, to, to wage a war on um, viral pathogens somehow, or to wage a war on drug use you know, without understanding the conditions of drug use and abuse, why it comes into our lives. So anyway, I, I because of the kind of language of our culture, I often really resonate with the language of the Buddha as practice as medicine, as this path of healing. Um, 
Angel Kyoto Williams, she lays it out for, very starkly for us. This is from an article um, titled, Your Liberation is on the Line. And this was, she gave this back in February, early February, so before the pan, just before the pandemic. But the article starts with her voice and she says, I think we are finally at a place where we can accept the truth that no one ex escapes from oppression, not one of us. She says, everyone is deeply wounded. She says, it's true some people seem to be in a position of what we call privilege, but we have to rethink that word. And I wanna say more, I mean, I, I don't think she's trying to undermine this awakening um, maybe of white culture that I think is kind of happening uh, around what white privilege means. She's not saying privilege doesn't exist, but maybe not in the way that we think. She says, um, it's true some people seem to be in a position of what we call privilege, but we have to rethink that word. We get stuck on this notion of white privilege or dominant privilege as if the marginalized people want what the people with privilege have. There's already an assumption in being a kind of part of the dominant culture that we assume other people want to be, to live like we live. But she says, I, but I want no part of it. I want no part of any illness that renders people unable to see the beauty of all our differences. The beauty of my own mixed raceness, blackness, queerness, all the things I am. I want no part of an illness that renders me unable to connect to love. That is not a privilege. So we have to begin by recognizing that the construct of white supremacy is an illness. I don't wish it on anyone, not on myself and not on you. We have all been told a lie. And our work, particularly for those of us who say we identify with this path of liberation, is to free ourselves of that lie. To get in there and observe that construct and the ways in which it limits us from our full potential. Um, there's two things I really love in there. You know, one is something I deeply believe that nobody benefits ultimately or spiritually from uh, racism, from systematized racism, from oppression. Yes, there are conventional um, privileges. Um, and yes, we live in a system where we're often kind of kept blind to those privileges. But ultimately, this doesn't serve any of us. And I, and I really do feel that. And I appreciate Angel's wisdom. But she's also saying, if we can acknowledge this lie that we've all kind of been conditioned into, and that's so deeply intertwined culturally to who we are, 
but it can be very hard to to find, you know, even as we want to try and unpack it. Um, but I really appreciate her calling that the work of liberation. This is the spiritual path. This isn't just racial justice work. Anyway, I, I feel like a beginner in so many ways in my own kind of path of understanding and coming to terms with my own conditioning living in this culture. And I'm open to, uh, to feedback and advice and suggestions and having conversations. You know, um, it's been a privilege in the last couple months to be part of um, what's been called the Wake Up group here in Austin at the Austin Sun Center between 10 and 20 of us have been gathering every two weeks and continuing even after the shutdown online to go through a curriculum, a curriculum of kind of study about the idea of whiteness and white supremacy and our own culture. Um, and, you know, what's part of what's been a real blessing from that group is doing it together you know, to to check out our understanding and to be um, kind of aware that we're all, uh, we all, in, in the language of Dogen, we all see what the eye, our, our own eye of practice can reach. Um, and we all have some perspective to lend. Um, and so I think one of the, how do we practice with ignorance is a lot about patience and meeting people where they are and really trying to, especially people who want to do this work, who want to delve into this. And I really, uh, I found that as, a, as a, an experience that came out of this wake up group that through the course of the eight weeks, we somehow got more comfortable with each other and with the topic. Um, and so that it became more of a kind of an inquiry and a and maybe less of a kind of big weight that we were trying to hide and shame or something. So my you know my hope is that these kinds of conversations and communities will um, continue to support us. In, this work of, of liberation, of waking up. Uh, and again, I'm totally open to ideas and suggestions for how we can do that at the Austin Sun Center. Yeah. So I want to thank you for your, your kind attention this morning and uh, just open it up to any questions or comments that you might have at this time. Tim? Yeah. Could you say maybe a little bit more about the wake up group in terms of will it be ongoing or will there be a new cycle or yeah. are people able to join? So yeah, so we completed it's a um, it's a curriculum that was specifically designed um, at the Spirit Rock Meditation Center in California. So it, it, the design of the curriculum was um, readings on 
social justice, racial justice, whiteness, but all f- with the kind of um, lens of spiritual practice and Buddhist practice, which I really appreciated. And it's also what I appreciate about Angel Kyoto Williams and Zenju Earth and Manual. It's, it's kind of using practice and uh, racial justice to kind of um, inform each other and help us in this path. But so anyway, the, the, the curriculum was kind of Buddhist focused. Um, it's eight sessions. We did it every two weeks. Um, and we did just complete um, the eight-week sessions uh, a few weeks ago, and then we met once after that to figure out maybe what we would like to do next. And I think um, there's going to be some more discussions uh, with the practice committee and some other people here, but um, it seemed like the 10 people, 10, 11, 12 people that finished that eight-week course really do feel motivated to continue and to open it up to a new group of people. So I think there's some possibility we would redo the curriculum and just open it to, to new people that want to join. We're also looking for other kinds of curriculum that might have a kind of, you know, preformed study um, materials that we can use. And we've even talked about down the road after kind of having some time together and some, some growth in understanding um, that we could eventually maybe design our own curriculum as well. So yeah, stay tuned. Um, there's no kind of official next step, but it's kind of, but the, the the group is continuing beyond just the eight-week course that we did. So, any other thoughts that folks want to share or questions you've had? Um, yeah, I uh, love that quote that you uh, gave of Kyoto Williams about she wanted no part of. Uh, of a culture that didn't, you know, honor their connectedness. And it reminded me of a book I read, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago. And in this book, I encountered the first time in my whole life that I thought that my way of life wasn't just the whole best in the whole world. And, <laughs> and that was that book about Ishii, the last Indian of his tribe in California that was found in the woods and then he was dragged into American culture and they tried to make him into some kind of big, um, um, I don't know. Symbol. Yeah. And yeah. He, he said, like maybe you've read it too, it sounds like it. And he said that he thought that uh, white people were barbarians and I was just shocked. Like, yeah. What me? <laughs> her 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 statement reminded me of that. Yeah, yeah. And I think you know, and that is part of the work of looking at our own conditioning in lots of ways, even outside of race. But um, is that kind of realization of the ways that we're hurting people that we're not aware of, um, and. I think that moment of recognition can be painful, but I think even in that pain, we kind of recognize some, uh, some jewel there that if I understand the ways or I come, become aware of the ways that I hurt other people, then maybe I can um, do something about that and not hurt, at least in that specific way that I've become aware of. 
think we, we kind of feel that even in the recognition of, oh, I don't really want to know that about my culture or my race or my country. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. It's a wonderful talk. Thank you. No, thank you. See. Yeah, Tracy. Jim, as always, you always cover so much rich ground, so much there. Um, and I'm just thinking of this Suzuki Roshi quote that David Chadwick offered in reading Crooked Cucumber in his podcasts, which are so wonderful. Uh, because it touches or speaks a little bit to uh, not what you were most recently talking about, but but something you said toward the beginning around there being a kind of a, uh, broadly speaking, uh, a fundamental okayness. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and Suzuki Roshi said, there is no need to seek for anything you have plenty and you have just enough problems. This is a mysterious thing, you know, the mystery of life. We have just enough problems, not too many or too few. And I really liked it when I first heard it because that last sentence, because it, it, it's, it's for sure true if, if we're meeting each problem kind of one at a time, you might say. And when we, and just, you know, this is no commentary on anything about anything you said today. <laughs> uh, uh, meeting one problem at a time, um, then there are just enough problems. Our problems really begin when we, when we think about all of our problems at the same time. <laughs> Then we're really like where we get into trouble. That's when, we, that's when we really suffer. And and yet it feels like one of those moments where we're kind of being challenged to worry about all of our problems. Oh my gosh! You know, oh my gosh. Economic problems, you know, medical problems, racial problems. Oh my goodness! All right here, yeah. Yeah. That's such a good point. Because that's really weighing on so, 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 so many of us. It's unavoidably in our face, the, the collective crystallization, distillation of things already present, but now it's really there in our faces. Yeah. yeah. And, and it, it reminds me of a teaching that Blanche um, used to give quite a bit. And um, I want to say there's a kind of shadow side to this teaching that we have to be aware of, but... But basically, I think, you know, I and a number of different students had asked her, you know, we understand that Zen is asking us to just be with one thing. You know, there's a kind of like, if you're holding the teacup, you use both hands, Mm. the whole body is attentive to the teacup. It's not like you're kind of holding it and you're kind of doing something else, you know. This is kind of the wisdom and unification of our mind that we're offered in Zen. So a number of us brought that question to Blanche, like what what happens when everything's happening at once? You know, I'm working in the kitchen and something starts to burn and I cut my finger and 
somebody comes in and they're shouting at me, you know, where is the one thing, you know? And she would say, you know, the whole um, field of your awareness is the one thing. You know, can you kind of stay open to all of it? I think that the shadow side of that teaching is just that we can kind of use that to cop out and not really be with the thing. It's sort of like, well, I'm just kind of being with everything. <laughs> but I, I, I appreciate the, um, it's just the kind of zooming out. It's a kind of broadening of our field from the one thing that we're being attentive to, to being attentive to kind of all of it, allowing it, um, being there with it happening. Mm, mm, mm. Zooming out. I like how you, you put that because the, the other cop out is, oh, I'm going to be so attentive to this one thing, I'm going to basically shut out everything else. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> yeah. And then in a way we're picking and choosing too. It's like, well, oh, I want to be attentive sure. with this one thing and I don't want to be attentive to the other things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's already an expression of our kind of desire and will. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tim. Oh, and happy birthday. I know it was a week ago, but I heard oh. you had a birthday. Happy birthday. In fact, I think it's on the, we, it's May 31st? Yes. Oh, okay. That's, that was my birthday, too. Ah, happy yeah. birthday. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's very cool. Yeah, it is cool. <laughs> <laughs> I have like three or four Dharma friends now who have the same birthday. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. How funny. Do you know Jamie, um, what's Jamie's last name at City Center, who's a... Oh, uh -huh, yes, I think so. Yes, yes. He's a, uh, I don't a lay, lay and trusted person at, at, at City yes. Center. He, yes. He, he shared my birthday. Yeah. Hey, I'm taking too much time, but what, what is that calligraphy behind you? What does that say? So when I lived at Tassahara, um, there was a Japanese monk who came every year that Mako and I both really know and love. And he's, I think now, the priest of the L.A. Zen Center, but his name's um, Kojima. And it was just sort of like a, a, a generous thing he would do when he would come to Tassahara was he would do calligraphy for people. And, oh, cool. Um, and I wanted, and I, I had seen him do it for other people and I wanted to see if he would, you know, give me a calligraphy. And he, so he, he stopped me with a very Zen question though. He said, what's your favorite Zen word? <laughs> and I said, um, I'm gonna have to go sleep on that and I'll tell you tomorrow. <laughs> um, and finally, I just said, patience. Ah. Um, because that's a lot of my experience of Sazen. It's mm -hmm. just being patient with whatever's kind of happening. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, he, he did the, the calligraphy, which is, I think, shinobu is the Japanese word. Um, and interestingly, the top part of the character, so the bottom part, the bottom half is the character for Shin or heart. Oh, yeah. But the top part looks like a kind of scaffolding and then um, a dangling sword. Oh. Hanging oh. from that scaffolding above the heart. Um, oh. So one explanation of the character was that um, patience as a kind of active practice is the kind of feeling of like this danger kind of swinging oh. over your heart it's, oh, it's, a yeah. of, it's a it's a very engaged thing so i think this is a way of seeing mm -hmm. patience as not a kind of tuning out and just and trying to be okay with everything that way. yeah yeah that yeah. patience is actually like 
I am willing, I'm here, I'm feeling it, I'm, I'm with what's happening. Thank you so much for that, that, that teaching of that calligraphy. Yeah, thanks yeah. for asking. Any other last thoughts or questions to share? Tim? Yeah. <clears throat> Can I just say thank you? Um, thank you for the talk, but also thank you for facilitating the wake up group. That was really very uh, beneficial and good medicine for me. Yeah, me too. Um, just to tag on to what you just said, that um, I think patience was really important to me in the process of going through that curriculum. And I, uh, I found that I had to be very patient with myself and in order to sort of confront my own discomfort at recognizing in myself my white privilege and my own racism. And that was really hard to do. Um, and it took a lot of, uh, it, it was very humbling to, get to, to go back to what you also mentioned. It also required a lot of compassion on my part to yeah. just do that work. And um, Again, I want to thank you for that, and I, I hope we can can continue doing that at, at Austin Zen yeah. Center because I think it's um, it's really important work to do if we're going to uh, wake up and uh, undo racism. Yeah, so thank I, you, Rich. Yeah, and and thank you for your you know showing up for that group and um, committing to that process, even though it, it's difficult at times. Yeah, I appreciate that. Okay, if there's not anything further, we'll do the chant and then um, we'll have maybe a couple announcements and then stick around if you'd like to just sort of briefly check in with some other folks. So we'll um, create some random groups of three or four to have um, breakout rooms and um, just, you know, have basically a tea kind of chat with folks, um, getting to know them. Again, feel free to, you don't have to stick around for a long conversation if you like. You just pop in and say hello and good to see you and you know, I'm off to whatever. Um, so yeah, we'll do that after the channel.